Welcome to the Scary Serengeti. We're your hosts, David Squarrier and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast and leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about cybersecurity and technology news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical applications that you can take into your office and help you protect your organization. Enough use. <laughs> There's a lot of use. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Breaking news. The Snatch ransomware group is now targeting the Mr. Stud cyberware across the world. If you don't pay the ransom, it'll be overclocked and you may catch fire. And that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. First article for today is Russian InfoSec boss gets nine years for $100 million insider trading caper using stolen data. And this comes to us from the register. Yeah. Uh, they, they could have jazzed up that hat, that headline. I mean, they used more, caper. But... Yeah. But you're right. It's like, a, Still, it's like a six out of 10. Yeah. That's, that's not great. We, should, we could do a whole podcast on rating re, the register uh, article headlines. <laughs> But what this article is about is Val Kushin, owner of a Russian firm called M13, was sentenced, to, and that's a pen test company, mm. was sentenced to nine years in the U.S. for stealing corporate financial data and making $93 million to insider training. And apparently that summary was created by ChatGPT, if I understand that note correctly. That is correct. I dumped the article in and asked it to create me a... Summary. It has improved to the point where it does not appear to be making stuff up quite as much as it used to when we originally well, tried this like a year ago. To be fair, though, that sentence is almost word for word in the opening of the article. <laughs> it's not changed much. <laughs> so that's how it's not. That's how it's not lying anymore. It's just lifting the the theme thesis sentence from the. Yeah. Uh... So, you know, his real fatal mistake was that <laughs> of most Russian hackers is he left the country. <laughs> So he went to Switzerland and they snatched him uh, when he was with his family on vacation. You know, Russia's uh, a big country. Like you can get everything you need huge. in Russia. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if it's an apt comparison, but it's kind of like the United States and you could go to anywhere in the United States and experience a different climate, different environment, just about same thing. I think could be said for Russia. The only real issue with Russia is it doesn't have much that's South. Yeah, that's, yeah, you're not going to get a Florida in Russia anywhere, I don't think. You know, they have, they do border the, I know the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea have some resort towns though, so you can get some of that feel there. Yeah, well, the Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula is a huge vacation spot. Mm. Uh, matter of fact, that's where Del Gorbachev was when they tried to snatch him during the, was a three-day revolution in, at the, at the end of the Soviet, Soviet empire. Oh. But anyway, his four co-conspirators charged but not snatched are oh, they didn't leave the country at large in russia they had left the country <laughs> and 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 you may have guessed that these guys are russian ba just based on their first names ivan nikolai and mikhail and igor igor oh that's a good one so i, I had a couple of things that i just kind of wanted to talk here so typically like recently it's all about ransomware. And I know we've seen a bunch of reports that have come out talking about how the mean time to detect has been dropping like a rock over the last couple of years. And it's not because we've gotten that much better at detecting them. It's because when they ransomware everything, it's like, oh, they're here. In this case, they 
broke into the company that handled the financial filings. They read the disclosure reports before they were public and made stock bets based on that. They didn't do much in the environment. They may not have gone lateral too much. They may not have been super noisy. Although when I ran reading this, apparently they were detected by the company back in 2017 because they used PowerShell Empire and Mimi Cats. Which, when you're trying to be quiet, like, why are you using publicly available tools? That part kind of hurts. Well, there was no details about how they got in. Yeah, but but just the fact that they used just stuff that, although I guess if you've got a good backdoor or, or additional, additional compromised accounts, like, you can get back in more easily afterwards. But, like, once you get in and you're reading this data, you don't touch anything else. You don't get noisy. You don't go wondering, poking around the environment, like you'd be darn hard to find, especially if you yeah. use legitimate like RDP and legitimate accounts. Yeah. I mean, if your method of intrusion wasn't noisy. I mean, even if it was a lot of times analysts, when they get that initial intrusion or the malware installation, they go and they reset the system and they don't necessarily do a deep dive looking for, you know, lateral movement or other things. Or backdoors. Or backdoors. Yeah. It used to be standard fare that you'd nuke a system. I mean, it still can be, that. I've been getting more pushback over time on like, do we need to wipe and rebuild? Do we have to? No, that's kind of, that seems kind of silly because, because especially in a virtual environment and doing that is pretty low level. It's not, it's not a whole lot of work to, 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 to nuke a virtual machine and rebuild it. If you're, oh, if you have a master. You know, if you're, if you're building everything from a master. Well, yeah, if you do everything correctly, if all of your data is offloaded onto a, you know, network attached network storage or something like that, everything is virtualized. You just spin back up from your gold image, but I don't feel, I feel like a lot of companies are not doing that. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. It should be yeah. easier today than it was in the past that's where you used to have to do all this shit on hardware. That's fair. So then this guy, they made the stock bets and this guy made $21 million. The government's asking for $37 million back because he made money off the stolen money. So I guess he invested it back into M13. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't know. That's just good business sense to me. Well, I mean, he could have just taken $21 million and just retired. That's what I would have done. done. But because you and I have talked about this before that, you know, these guys get caught because they're, they're overly zealous in their greed or their their desire for that cash. Only, well, I don't know. I guess you just get afraid of keeping up with the Joneses. You get your 21 million and look up at the guy that has a hundred million. You're like, ah. Yeah, I suppose. But if you read through the, the complaint document, it says the service provider firms that were hacked by the defendants here and after referred to as the servicers assist publicly traded companies with, you know, the preparation filing of periodic and other reports to the SEC, including reports containing public companies' earnings information, the service providers help the service servicers help the public companies file reports with SEC through the SEC's online electronic data gathering analysis and retrieval system called Edgar. So basically, this thing happened because the government was forcing companies to file through Edgar which, which, which I guess is caused, and, and I'm thinking that, you know, if it's easy to use this system, Edgar, these companies would be doing it, doing it directly, but because the government forces people to use <laughs> Edgar, they must use a different 
service company to do this work for them because it's either hard or expensive. Because I can't imagine why these companies would not be using either in their own accounting department to file these these documents. So it, it forces the consolidation of this kind of data in one place. So you'd almost say that you know the SEC led to this compromise of multiple companies or yeah. and, well of this company which led to th this whole caper in the first place because if they didn't force this then there wouldn't have been the central place for all these companies records to be at and this this the the irony here is that the sec uh edgar system was compromised back in 2016 and was only discovered as part of an audit which was directed by the chairman of the sec and this whole Edgar system processes almost 2 million electronic filings a year. So that's a lot of data that's in that system. But, the, but they said that the, the system was hacked in 2016, but the story where I was able to find this was in 2017, which is just after C released a notification about it. But both the, the article and the SEC's notification were kind of vague because it could have happened in 2016 and discovered in 2016, or happened in 2016, discovered in 2017, or happened before 2016, and only discovered mm. in 2016 with traded with trades linked back to the hack identified in 2017. So it's not the greatest filing on exactly what the heck even happened over at the SEC, other than they didn't catch anybody. <laughs> but they seem to indicate that they think that trades were made in 2017, at least based on what was stolen the year before. Which seems kind of weird because the whole premise behind this filing was the fact that they had these records, they knew what the companies were going to publish them, and based on the reaction to these published documents, the stocks were going to tr change in value, either up or down. Yeah. And a year later, that seems like it's way too late because you're talking about quarterly filings and annual filings. like, well... How making a, a stock trade a year later would seem to be completely divested or or or, or way uh, too far away from the source documents to be any good. Yeah, I'm wondering what the limit on, like, how much could they have placed a bet for before the SEC paid attention to them? Like, if they made a million dollars for each of these trades, is that enough? The SEC starts watching. I imagine they probably have some sort of sophisticated algorithm for checking, you know, looking at people that put shorts on a company before and at a yarnings announcement or something or, or, or buying additional stock beforehand or something. I couldn't say because I have no idea what that standard environment looks like because maybe people do that all the time. There probably are. I mean, every yeah, because the earning dates and the times when every company releases the information are all public. So there are probably are people that are making a guess. That's why I'm wondering if there's like a threshold, like people probably, you know, make a guess on a thousand dollars worth of stock with very little, can, you know, maybe it goes up a little, maybe it goes down a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. But once you, once you're like someone buys like $10 million worth of stock, then it's like, whoa. That's an awful large bet. Yeah. But so, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day though, they would still have to find some reason to, to, or some, you would think anyway, that they'd have to find some evidence, yeah. which purely showed that it was uh because yeah, they might just be super made. lucky right I and mean, you know you what i wonder if they you know what they should have done is they should have lost some money on some of these just to confound that well i think they did 
because of the whole 2000 trades and 97% related. Uh, oh, okay. So they, they, they were trying to, yeah. So you did mention in here, 97% of the trades were filed with the SEC by the victim filing agents. Yes. They may have tried to do some confounding, but maybe not enough. Yeah. Hard to say. Yeah. That would, yeah, you definitely don't want to do like 50%, but imagine if you put like 20 or 30%, because again, you could just do a trade where a company's, the stock's going to go up or down after an earnings event. And 50% of the time, like you'll come out on top of that anyways. So the, your, the, whatever percentage of trades that you do to confound, it, it's just going to be a wash. Mostly. I mean, I'm sure it's not going to be exactly like they don't go up exactly the same amount or down the same amount, but it should mostly average out. Right. Well, that would be the trick though, is you, is the number of trades evens out where 50% are good, 50% are bad, but in mass, you make oh, more than you lose. The good ones are really good. Right. Yeah. As compared to the ones that were bad. That makes sense. And, and frankly, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes even with a good report, like maybe the stock only goes up like 50 cents. Yeah. So, I don't know. Or sometimes it unexpectedly like drops and you're like, whoa, what happened here? But anyway, sorry. I'm going off on a tangent. Yeah. Turn this into a trading podcast. That's our next pivot. Anyway, so he got sentenced to nine years, but the hacker's lawyer had asked for a leniency on 36-month sentence due to his admirable traits. So I guess that means he wanted them to drop it to only a 36-month sentence, or they wanted yeah, to drop I it think by Yeah, I think that's months. what it is. I think it was drop it to 36. And I just had to laugh at like the whole admirable traits thing. Like, that's hilarious. Yeah, well, maybe they had a whole bunch of reference letters. It did say that he had. He did have some reference letters. All right. So why does this matter? Well, there's lots of focus on ransomware gangs now because they're the loudest people in the neighborhood, but you can't forget there's some quiet ones still out there and there are other ways to make money than just getting you to pay ransom. Admittedly, that's probably the fastest way to do it, but. Right. And what you're, uh, and obviously if it wasn't, it wasn't plain in this, this is a third party risk issue is those companies are using a third party in order to process those documents. But this was a third-party risk caused by the government regulations. Big surprise there. But in the article, a Jody Cohen, uh, an agent for the FBI, is quoted saying, Russian businessman is a sophisticated hacker who engineered a global get-rich scheme that defrauded unsuspecting American businesses of approximately $93 million. And that's complete bullshit. <laughs> they didn't steal $93 million from anybody. If they had not had this information and made those same trades, they still would have came away with the same amount of money. They didn't steal any money from anybody because insider trading is a fake crime to begin with. Yep. 100% agree with that. Yeah. People, the people selling the stocks made a choice to sell it for that amount of money. And the people buying the stocks had made the choice to sell it for that amount of money. Like there was no fraud. It was, they, right. they, they just, they just timed the market way more effectively because right. of their and insider knowledge. Yeah, which is ludicrous because, you know, if a hedge fund manager is really good at what they do, then they have in some kind of insider knowledge. So I should be able to send them to jail for making more money than I do. Can we do that? Start jailing people <laughs> that make more money than we do. <laughs> well, you know, the government doesn't send rich people to jail. So no, that's not going to happen. <sighs> I mean, they do. And then they off themselves in jail occasionally. Yeah, but by it's pretty accident. rare. <laughs> by accident. Uh... So speaking of the FBI... 
The second article is FBI CISA issues jo joint warning on Snatch ransomware as a service. This All comes right. to us from Dark Reading. The FBI and CISA, as <laughs> the, the summary from ChatGPT, also basically just copies the title. <laughs> she advised <laughs> on the Snatch ransomware as a service operation active since 2018. Highlighting its targeting of critical infrastructures, evolution of tactics, and unique ability to force Windows systems to reboot in safe mode, evading antivirus detection. ChatGPT did get the most salient point here about the reboot in safe mode. Yeah, at least according to us. Yeah, yeah. From reading this article, it seemed mostly business as usual for a ransomware group, but they really only seem to have one trick, which is forcing a reboot to safe mode before they encrypt the files so that AV no longer works, no longer detects it, no longer prevents them from encrypting files. According to Sophos, this was added in 2019, which I was like, why is this the first time I've heard of it? But apparently that's due to the CISA advisory that just came out. I don't know why. There was somebody quoted in the article that mentioned they thought the CISA advisory was coming out now because the Snatch ransomware group had been ramping up over the last couple months, but there was no, no, nothing in there on why specifically they are pushing them now. Now, you know, it's been a while since I've had to reboot into Windows safe mode. From what I remember, you can reboot into Windows safe mode with and without networking, right? Yes. Because I would think that it would make more sense to reboot into safe mode without networking just to ensure that uh, there other than AV. Sense. And also make it harder to recover too. I don't know if you'd want to or not, but. Well. It, de it it depends because once the once the encryption is done, you could reboot in regular mode. You know, just reboot the machine again, and have it come back up, and no one would be none the wiser mm. from the outside perspective until they realize it was encrypted. Leaving it rebooted in safe mode off the network, yeah, I mean that that would actually probably hinder your ability to get your ransom back because they're like, well, then we still have to go to all these machines and reboot. Well, I, I don't know. In in the in the modern day of all vir in uh, virtual machines and everything, unless you're talking about desktops, then these machines rebooting in safe mode still could be virtual machines anyway. So it may not really be relevant to that. I was I just thinking about the ability to to obfuscate the attack even more by doing it in safe mode without networking. Because once that once the ransomware agent's on there, it doesn't have to talk to the network anymore. I think the one ch the one problem with this though is 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 the network dash storage. So if you have a network yeah. drive and you're rebooting the safe mode, you're not connecting to that drive, so they're not going to able to propagate the ransomware to network drives, which is one of the things that they typically do to get a greater reach on the ransomware, and that's going to affect more sensitive data because that's where everybody's stuff stored stored at. So. As we just talked about in an ideal situation, yes. In theory. So I thought about it. I I don't think we can prevent booting into safe mode. I looked online and there were a couple of people suggested that changing some registry keys made it so that users couldn't get into safe mode when it rebooted. But given the way that this happened, it has to trigger the reboot into safe mode before you get to the, you know, the F8. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't think we'd even want to, because that preventing booting into safe mode also prevents a lot of troubleshooting. Although again, these days, maybe it's easier to just wipe and rebuild from scratch anyways. So maybe we don't need safe mode anymore. Yeah, I don't know. Good question. Yeah, I don't know. 
Also wondered if we could detect booting into safe mode, although your point about going into safe mode without networking, I wonder if it, I wonder if it also turns off logging agents. I have no idea. Like I said, it's yeah. been a long time since I've had to boot it into safe mode on a Windows I know. PC. I know. It's. Hmm. So like you're saying, maybe that's just passe and it's, it's, it's another ding for Microsoft to being overly backwards compatible. It's like, you really don't need that anymore. You should get rid of it. But Microsoft doesn't. My, Microsoft, in, in the coding perspective, they're hoarders. You know, they didn't want to let anything go. Everything's got to be, everything's got to be backwards compatible. Let's keep it forever. All right. Nothing, nothing too special here. Just saw that there was a new tactic or what I thought, what we thought was a new tactic. Yeah. There's, I mean, I, I can't think of anything you could really do about it. Well, maybe that's why it's so good. All right. For our next article though, uh, company called Retool blames breach on Google Authenticator MFA Cloud Sync feature. This comes to us from Bleeping Computer. So Retool is a software development platform used by various companies, and they suffered a breach after, attacker, after attackers compromised. Well, they were breached, and that breach led to the compromise of 27 cloud accounts through social engineering. And the, the attack exploited a new Google authentication feature that allows the syncing of MFA tokens to Google accounts. Hey, what could possibly go wrong with that? But those 27 accounts were all tied to crypto, the cryptocurrency industry in one way or another. And there's a, 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 a potential link between this breach and the theft of $15 million from, for, from the Fortress Trust. Yeah, so I took a quick look at Retool. It reminds me of a much fancier Visual Basic. I remember taking a class on Visual Basic back when I went to college, back in 1999. But it allows creation of business elements, business applications via a drag and drop UI, and it has pre-built UI elements that all kind of snap together. Yeah, no wonder companies like Amazon use it. I mean, we're getting to no code. It's gonna. We we talked the other we talked the other week about how. When we were talking about the content management stuff, all the companies are going to, you know, plain language or, you know, translators. So you don't have to learn a query language for any sim or anything with, with coding. You don't have to, you still have to know enough about coding to be able to sew stuff together that, you know, chat GPT or copilot is generated, but within a couple of years, it's going to be all no code, everything. Yeah. Actually, you know, when I was thinking about that, going back to the sim thing that if all sims move to that natural language query model, mm -hmm. that would end up being your universal content creation. Because yeah. once you wrote the prompt, in theory, you could take that prompt and give it to any sim, and any sim would properly translate that into what that sim does with the resources that that sim has. So if you wrote a prompt that says, hey, I want to find any AV alerts on five machines or more, you say that in natural language, whether you're using Splunky ES or you're using the IBM Q radar with Microsoft Defender or McAfee, either way, it's going to translate that into the proper content to detect, you know, five AV or alerts uh, for AV on five machines. Yeah. I mean, you still have to know what to put into those prompts, but yeah, it would certainly make things a lot easier. Well, that's what I'm saying, though, is if you know, then you, yeah. that could be a universal thing. And, you know, we were talking, I think we actually mentioned maybe on that, on that podcast where people might be able to sell their code or their, their content. You know, if you're able to sell the, a prompt like that, 
or put in into a into a a open source repository and other people can can pull it down uh, if it's good content then it will be spoken or written in such a way that it would be universally applicable depend regardless of the tools that are used at any organization like i said you, you know, say av instead of mcafee alerts or, or microsoft defender alerts yeah and you know you just we didn't i don't know that we talked about this but one of the vendors last week that we talked about or two weeks ago sock prime you can submit your own content so that one that one has a big community marketplace and if your content is high enough quality, you can get paid through it. So it is like the Steam community where you get, you'll get a nickel? I don't know. I, they didn't talk about how much, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. This occurred during an announced migration to Okta. The phishing page apparently looked like an internal identity portal, which I have a couple questions about this. The phishing attack was via text. Uh, one employee clicked it and submitted credentials. But I wonder how public this migration was that they... And they, they had phone numbers for employees and they knew what was going on and they sent an internal identity portal. Well, I mean, that's stuff that I was wondering about is that if the employee thought they were being directed to an internal identity portal, had they not seen it before or did the attacker know what that portal looked like? Now, he, the, the employee mentioned that the attacker seemed to be familiar with floor plans of the office, coworkers, and internal processes. Hmm. So it sounds like this might have been a former employee at this organization that actually made did the attack. That makes a lot of sense too, because after the creds were submitted, the attacker used a deep baked voice call to the IT help desk to add another device to the Okta 2FA. And I had questions on how they got the voice, although they had the phone number, so I thought they might have just called them. And yeah. had, you know, pretended to be something else and get enough conversation for training material. No, unless, unless the, the employee they were calling knew the voice of the person who was calling, you know, knew the help desk guy. Yeah, I just hung up. I just hang up. No, I, I, I mean, if a help desk, if a guy called me from my company's help desk, I wouldn't oh, know if, he, if oh, I knew I that guy or I not. I see. Why do you need to do a deep Why do you fake? need to do the deep right. fake? It, it sounds like... It's it, it kind of sounds made up by the company in order to further justify their the reasoning why this that the employee failed to realize what was going on. Gotcha. That's interesting. I didn't even think of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Because any no reasonably sized it. company, you're not you have no idea what anybody sounds like. Yeah, I mean, in the Hitman game, he never tries to disguise his voice. No need. So I. It, Based on several things in this article, it seems to indicate a former employee or maybe a current employee, I don't know, was the one that actually perpetrated this. But once they were able to get pa get the uh, code from the employee, they were able to add their own personal device to the employee's Okta account. So once they did that, because of the cloud sync, they were able to get all the authenticator codes synced to their, their device. Well, no, this is, they, they actually... They, they're using three-factor auth here almost because <laughs> they've got the credentials, which they got via phishing. Then they use the deep fake to add their personal device to the Okta, but then they had a, a second multi-factor auth because the internal authorization, internal apps require Google Authenticator. And since the employee had synced their Authenticator to cloud, the attackers so the attackers had to have access to the Google account too. 
Right. But once they got that, then they were able to get all the code synced to their device because the, well, the Okta synced. stuff. Yeah. They added their own personal device to the Okta. Are you saying they added their own, they added their own Google authenticator to the cloud one? No. Well, maybe I'm misunderstanding the way that this works, but the way that I, I, I understood it to work is that the employee has a Google account with all their codes synced to the cloud. Yeah. And you can only get to that by connecting an authorized device to it, to that. So once the attacker connected his device to that, then he was able to retrieve all the sync Google, Google authenticator codes because his device was then joined to the cloud. Because the whole point of the cloud sync is to be able to get your Google codes on, from one device to another device. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So the, the Okta MFA allowed them to connect to the VPN and then that gave them an active G Suite session. So once they had an active G Suite session, then they allowed that allowed them to sync there or get access to their synced MFA. Right. Codes. So, but still, I love that they had like multiple MFAs here and it didn't stop them. Yeah, got to have them all. Well, yeah, obviously the problem here is that we need five-factor authentication. You should have also had a YubiKey. Yeah, well, the, the thing about this you know, multiple failures actually called out in an Ars, an Ars Technica article which will be linked in the show notes. Uh, to quote the author of that article, there's a good argument to be made that Codesh used the Google Authenticator issue to deflect attention away from the retool's culpability in the compromise. Oh, yeah. they He kept calling that out and being like, it strongly contributed to this. What about your help desk giving them access to Okta? Did that strongly contribute to this? What about the <laughs> user that put their credentials in there and fell for the phishing email? Did that strongly can like? There's, there's a lot of, there were, there were yeah. many failures along the way. Yeah. A lot of deflection of blame saying, you know, this is entirely Google's fault for doing this. Yep. And I was a little bit confused about the actual configuration here because Retool says, and I quote, we strongly believe that Google should provide organizations with the ability to disable it. But later in the article, Google says, and I quote, Google Authenticator users know they have a choice whether to sync their OTPs to their Google account or to keep them stored locally. So it seems like that configuration setting was already there. Or are they just, or is the, or is the, the complaint here that Retool says, well, we should be, be, the company should be able to turn it off versus individuals turning it off. Well, Maybe that's I, the complaint is that they don't have an organizational level ability to disable even though individuals have the ability to disable. I don't have the ability to disable it. I just checked. I was like, oh, this isn't set up for me. No, Google has this turned on automatically. And you can't uh, disable it? I thought it was just you just tap that cloud to put the X no, through it. No, if I tap the cloud, it says your codes are being saved to a Google account. It does not change it. And oh, if I go shit. to settings, the only setting I have is time correction for codes. Oh, I'm glad I stopped using Google Authenticator a long time ago. Wow. That's terrible. Yeah, I don't see a way to, I don't see a way, I may go, I may go look up. Yeah, you may want to switch authenticator apps. That is some wild BS. All right, so why does this matter? I thought it was interesting that the this company, because they were trying to be very secure, had three layers of auth, and the attackers got all through all three, which is ridiculous. Yeah, uh, I mean, it also looks like there was a failure on their phishing response. Or they didn't have one because uh, one employee clicked, but nobody else reported it because if an employee had reported it, then that also could have prevented that one click from being successful. 
Maybe. It was on a phone. A lot of places don't monitor phones. Well, then there's also a failure. There's, there's still a gap there, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, the gap is just, uh, yeah. Do you, are, you, are you getting those proxy logs or those click logs from the phones or not? Well, I mean, if, do you have what, an MSM or what's the new term for it? ESM? MDM? Uh, on your phone. device management? Right. So that might be something. And do you or do you, or or have a mechanism for employees to report smishes uh, when they get them or not? Yeah, phones are phones are tough unless you are managing them, and you should be managing them at this point. There's so many people that are using their phones for work that you should yeah. provide them with a work phone if they need it, or they should allow you to monitor on their personal phone. Unfortunately. Yeah, and, as, and if you're issuing a phone, you should definitely be doing some level of management on it. Yeah, I would very much prefer that one. Like, issue a phone, don't try to get your snoopware on my personal phone. Yeah, well, I mean, what's also interesting about that is, if if you think about it, if if I have my phone and I'm sitting at home, and I click on a link, I would not expect me to get, expect that link to take me to the internal network. So, if they always had an always-on VPN for the phone that it was you know, connect to your Wi-Fi and then VPN into your company's network, I would assume you would have some additional layers of protection there as well. Because you, if that were the case, then the employee still would have had to go out through the corporate proxy because their phone would have been VPNed into the company to go out. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think retooling could, or retool could have done some additional work there. And this actually got me thinking whether it would make sense to monitor your proxy traffic for instances of your em- of your usernames in your company. Because you figure when he, when he put it in his credentials, it was username and password. And if you're sending your, all your network traffic or your web traffic through a proxy and doing interception on that to do IDS detections or DOP detections or whatever, would it make sense to monitor that proxy for seeing instances of employee user IDs using an exact data matching and a DOP tool or not? You know, with the exceptions for like SSO stuff, or there are instances where you would expect employee usernames to traverse the proxy to go out to the internet. I wouldn't think so, but I just thought of that right before we kicked off this podcast. So I don't know if that fully thought that through or not. What do you think? I, I don't know. I, I am generally a huge fan of trying to get as much proxy data as possible. But I know that SSL inspection really messes stuff up. So I don't know about the rest of it, especially on phones too, because if they're off the Wi-Fi. Yeah, well, that's a separate thing. Yeah. But if you're using a cloud proxy for all your devices. Yeah, that'd be helpful. That'd actually be kind of interesting. Because if your user, yeah, if your usernames are in a consistent method, you could probably look for email addresses pretty easily. And a lot of the, like you mentioned, a lot of the, Phishing kits will pre-populate the email address and the link. That'd be real interesting. I may have to go play with that and see if anything interesting pops up. Although other places do that too. So hmm. I just don't know how common it is in benign ones. Yeah. And you could turn it on and, you know, see what it looks like, I guess. All right. For our last article, we're talking AI because we're an AI. We an AI podcast now. (laughs) Centaurs and and cyborgs on the jagged frontier. That's Uh, a really good name. A really good title. (laughs) It is. 
Classic. It's a little more business-like on the inside, though. The Wharton School of Business partnered with the Boston Consulting Group to conduct an experiment on how much more efficient consultants using ChatGPT4 were. So for the experiment, they created a number of work requests that were functionally similar to real consulting work, but were performed for a fictional company. And apparently they went back and found some, I think it was a fictional shoe company. They went back and found some folks They worked for a real shoe company and asked them and said that they were very realistic tasks. So the most important bottom line up front, luff. The findings were that 12.2% more tasks were completed by the group that used AI to help them out. The AI group completed those tasks 25.1% faster. And when they graded the tasks afterwards and for quality, the AI-assisted tasks were rated 40% higher. So in almost every dimension, and we'll get to the other dimension later, in almost every dimension, the consultants that used AI got more stuff done, they did it faster and with higher quality. Now, the question is, what were the tasks that they were doing? And I'm skipping a little bit down in the notes, David. But these were things like generating ideas to recommend the company did, writing and marketing tasks, persuasiveness tasks. So these were, you know, general consultancy type work. It's not necessarily the type of work that everybody does. So unfortunately, this doesn't reflect how AI is going to affect everybody, but I I did think it was super interesting. They also found that the impact was different based on skill and experience level. Less skilled consultants got a 43.1% boost in terms of, I assume this is based on quality, and more skilled consultants got a 17% boost. So the more skilled you are, the less AI helped you, but it still helped you a bit. And what it did is it almost brought those employees level. So with the boost, the less skilled workers were only 4% below the more skilled consultants. So almost it made almost universally good. Yeah. I, I, I've known some consultants that I wish just chat GPT for. Ah, you know, I wonder if this would help auditors you know, not be total shit. So they did pick one task that was not a strength of LLMs. They didn't mention it in the article and I didn't dive deep enough into the white paper to see, but they did find at least one task where the consultants using AI were 19% less accurate. If I remember right, it was the consultants using AI were 60% accurate versus 79% accurate or 80% accurate for the just purely manual consultants. But hey, they probably got there faster. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that goes back to the, the, the triangle of the fast, good, and cheap, right? Yeah. So I would think that that kind of sounds like you got the fast and cheap part, but not the good part. Yeah, so you, got still, the, you, got you got the, the, the crappy consultant with the AI <laughs> helping them out, doing it fast. Right. So they divided the users into two different groups. This is where the centaurs and cyborgs come from. Centaurs did half the work on using AI, and then they moved the work over and completed it manually. So half and half. Cyborgs chunked to the work, and they did each part with AI. They would, you know, this is actually how I program with AI, is, you know, I ask for it to write me a function, and then I copy the function and integrate it into my larger program, then I go back and ask it to do the next function. So that's how I tend to work with AI. Although I've been wondering if, especially with the advances, if it could write the whole program all at once with a sufficiently detailed prompt. I'm going to have to try that. 
I think that really depends on how complex the ask is because you don't want you because we know that AI is imperfect. That means you'd have to go through a thousand lines of code and troubleshoot, you know, the thousand lines to ensure that they were all correct instead of doing maybe a hundred at a time. But I'm not sure that makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I don't think I would do it that way anyway, because I wouldn't want to have to do that. I think I'd rather do it function by function, conjunction, junction. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So why does this matter? Well, we've already reached the place. Like, it's now. Now is the place where if your work can be improved with AI and you want to remain competitive, you probably need to start using it. As I mentioned before, there's only some things that large language models are good at, the generating ideas, writing and marketing, persuasiveness. I'm still struggling to figure out how these impact security and how I can work this into my daily tasks. The only one of those I can think of is persuasiveness tasks or one I use ones I use regularly. We talked before. I, I can't wait till I can get it to get in my email and get in my chat and rewrite my snarky. I, yeah, I, you know, have it act like your manager to look over your shoulder and say, no, no, you need to tone this down. No, 100%. I have, I, so I've actually recently started putting my email on a five minute delay because my first impulse on how to respond is almost never the correct impulse on how to respond. So, yeah, so AI as a governor. Yeah. Now I, I, I need this and I need this also in uh deep bake as well. So like all my stuff, when I talk is like on a three second delay, so the AI can rewrite it to make it nicer. <laughs> someone, someone told my wife the other day that she was too nice. And I was like, nobody's ever said that about me. Oh, wait, <laughs> Remember that means something, <laughs> you know, I, you know, you did this whole lot thing about how AI is, is here now. And in order to stay competitive, you need to use AI. I wonder if there's going to be a visible difference between where companies are at in two or three years from now for those mm-hmm. that have started to embrace it and, and written rules and policies so that yeah. so the employees can leverage AI today versus these companies who are, who are completely blocking it right now because they don't know what the heck to do about it. Yeah, like a, like a clear inflection point where, oh, this company, you know, was, was making 2% more each year and now it's making 5% more each year or something. Yeah, or look to see that, you know, this company is stagnating and this one's going past or yeah. or this one was experiencing 3% growth. Now they're experiencing 5% growth, whereas this company is still at 3% because they have not embraced AI or something like that. I'm sure yeah. some e- economist or some business school people will, will do some kind of analysis with that in a couple of years. I'd say, you know, two to three years, there may be distinct difference between those two companies. Yeah, the that'd two, be interesting. The two types of companies anyway. So I don't know. Have you figured out any really good security use cases for this so far? No. Yeah, I think my problem is security is so number one, detail oriented. Number two, these broad generalizations that large language models can do are almost never particular. Like for example, I, I tried a prompt that I picked up from one of my one of my security spirit animals that he had written and he said gave him a lot of value for summarizing articles. And I, you know, rewrote it a little bit to try and shorten the research process for the podcast. And it gave me insights, quote unquote, but they were the kind of insights that like a first year analyst would give. It was like for the Snatch ransomware article, it was like one of the insights, quote unquote, it gave me was ransomware is ever increasing in impact and needs to be watched out for or something stupid like that. Hmm. Oh, gee, thanks. Yeah. 
Actually, you know what? Hold on. Let me go up and uh, I can read them off to you, actually. <laughs> Which one was this one? This was the uh, No, we didn't do that article. Yeah, I think AI, I think AI could help security if we let it loose on the dark web as a, as a, as a source. <laughs> and then we could uh, yeah. ask AI no, that to, would be awesome. it, to glean information for when it learned on the dark web. Yeah. So here we go. Here's the, here's the ideas from, for retool. It was the first one was retool software development platform is widely used by startups and major enterprises. Like that's factually correct, but that's not. That's useful. not insightful. That's not insightful. The new Google authenticator sync feature was a pivotal vulnerability in this breach. So from reading the article, you might believe that. We don't think it was. We think that, and then you mentioned that the also the Ars Technic article thought that they were trying to, so like the AI didn't realize that that was somebody trying to deflect attention and, and blame. Mm -hmm. So deep fake technologies are becoming a notable cybersecurity risk. Kind of, but like from this well, article. They already that are. Wasn't... It's not they're becoming, they are. Yeah. And from this article though, like, like you pointed out, that deep fake voice thing was probably totally useless. Like they didn't need it unless this company is so small that everybody recognizes everybody by their voice. So it seems unlikely. Yeah. I know, this is what I'm saying. Like it's pulling out things that are factually correct, but they're not really insight. They're kind of. Well, I mean, this kind of goes back to that Meisler article we read a few months ago where he said he thinks that the AI understands because it was able yeah. to write that stupid star uh star wars poem but i don't think it does understand i said no. understanding is still not there i agree i think we still got some still got some ways to go it's really good at some things and it's gonna wipe out some low value jobs that aren't really providing much anyways yeah like, like marketers welding arms get rid of them lawyers get rid <laughs> lawyers, of them, get rid of them. Uh, we're safe for now Safe. I mean, I think yeah. someone could make a lot of money actually if they built a dedicated legal AI. I'm sure someone's I mean, working on it. I hope a lot of money in that. I think because you know, I actually I was just listening to a podcast before we came on here about one of the guys that got ch charged for January 6th, and he said yeah. he had to spend over a hundred thousand dollars in legal fees. Now, if you imagine you boil that down and let an AI do a lot of that work that would save a lot of people a lot of money and that's just that's a criminal case which is way more expensive but just think about yeah. just regular powers of attorney and you know simple things like that trusts um, wills stuff like yeah. that yeah stuff that's relatively simple you could save a lot of people save a lot of people a lot of money for that i'm not gonna make not gonna make any comment on january 6th specifically but the fact that rich people can basically just chase poor people out of court just by threatening lawyer fees mm. isn't just an incredible injustice or the government even can do that where yep. uh, it's cheaper to plead guilty and yeah. just take whatever plea deal. I think I saw something that like, they, that's like nine out. We talked about this, right? Where it's like nine out of 10 are plea deals now mm -hmm. because people don't even want to defend themselves because it's too expensive. Right. And if you, if you go to trial, they charge you with five things instead of, uh, let you plead guilty to one thing. I mean, it's not justice anymore. No, really. If isn't. it ever was. Um, but I saw a video, a part of a video deposition of a of a wealthy guy who was being who the government was going after, and, and he said, "You know, I can afford to do this because I'm wealthy. I can afford to fight this. But your average person can't fight this. You guys are just throwing them in jail." 
oh, what should you do about this? Well, let's go back to the AI part. If you're not already start playing with AI, try to take a look at your work policies and figure out whether you're allowed to use it for work. And if you are, make sure that you try to get some of those professional licenses that protect your intellectual property. Because if you put your work into the free versions, it is no longer your intellectual property. And I think if you have any ability to influence your company's policy also, try to get in front of this. I mean, well, I oh, mean, yeah. it's a little bit late to get in front of it, but try to convince your company that you need to start being able to leverage this instead of cutting yourself off from it. Yeah. Well, so the biggest reason that people wanted to hold off before was because of that lack of protection for intellectual property. Uh, but they've, re- they've all, all the major companies now have released models where you maintain ownership over your own. Your data is not used to train the mm-hmm. uh, larger data model. That should no longer be a concern. Right. That should not be a hurdle. Right. But that is all the articles we have for today. Thank you for joining us and follow us at Sarah 80 Sec on Twitter and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 